Welcome to Brettonomics, a podcast series brought to you by the Bretton Woods Committee. I'm Nancy Jacqueline, and I'm hosting this series. It's about the institutional framework for the uh, international monetary uh, and economic cooperation. The framework began at the historic conference in 1944 at Bretton Woods, where two important institutions were created, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Our first podcast explained what I call the national policies of mutual economic destruction that took place during the uh, two world wars, and it created a, a great need for some solution to the problem, and that's what the negotiators at Bretton Woods needed to confront. In our last podcast, I talked with Ted Truman about the IMF's core mission, and that's supporting the stability of the uh, international monetary system through cooperation on exchange rate policies and practices with some rules of the road, and also with the IMF providing short-term financing for members that have difficult balance of payments problems, but need a bit of time to address them domestically to match their international trade and financial positions. Today, we're going to look a little more deeply into the IMF's role in financing of a particular kind, specifically for countries that have unbearable debt burdens that don't want to default on their sovereign debt. In the 1980s, when there was a large amount of bank lending, uh, and it was provided to developing countries by a large number of lenders who were geographically dispersed, the IMF took on a new pivotal role as a kind of coordinator uh, of sovereign debt crisis resolutions, and not just providing its own financing. The IMF's aim was not only to help the developing country in need, but also to help stem contagion more broadly. My guest today uh, is Charles DeLara, and Charles was a senior U.S. Treasury official and the U.S. Executive Director of the IMF in the 1980s. He also was a banker at J.P. Morgan for some years in the 1990s, and then led the Institute of International Finance for 20 years until 2013. The Institute was created in the 1980s, in fact, to deal with the need for um, adequate uh, research and analysis uh, on developing country finance, and also uh, over time for advocacy in the area of international credit and investments. Um, and so Charles' career has really been at the center of these issues, both as a practitioner and as a policymaker. He could not be more perfect uh, for talking about these issues with us. Charles currently is chairman of the board of Partners Group USA. So welcome, Charles. It's great to see you again. Thank you, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be with you and to be part of Retinomics. Okay. Well, let's dive right in. So if you can tell us a bit about um, the widespread developing country sovereign debt crisis that began in the early 1980s, how it started, uh, what kind of risks it, it posed, and how it spread. Certainly, Nancy. Well, as you know, the IMF was designed initially to provide short-term balance of payments financing, but in the 1980s, the problems became much more complicated. The debt crisis of the 80s actually stemmed back into the 1970s, when those of our generation may well remember that uh, suddenly in the fall of 1973, gasoline prices quadrupled. That was a function of an oil price embargo, which led to a recession in the uh, major economies of the world, including the United States. But it also led to something called petro-recycling, where the now wealthy 
oil producers of the Middle East lent their money to the money center banks in the U.S., Europe, and Japan. And they decided in order to get sufficient and strong returns to own lend it to Latin American and other emerging market economies. The consequence of this was a large buildup in debt to countries in Latin America. 1975, total outstanding debt to them was something in the range of 75 billion. By 1982, it was 330 billion. My gosh. This was a manageable amount, perhaps, in a world of low and contained inflation. But as this lending was underway, inflation persisted and even grew in the United States. And as you will recall, in 1979, a newly ensconced chairman of the board of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker, decided enough was enough. And on October 6, he announced a radical change in monetary policy, which led to a dramatic increase in interest rates. In order to bring down what was then a 10%, very high inflation, Fed funds rates actually went up as high as 20%. That's right. People today need to think about that. That's right. We want to talk about bad and really bad inflation. And, yes, and, 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 and really high interest rates. Right. That you're, was the era. You're exactly right. The consequence of that was to make the debt burden of these Latin economies pretty unmanageable. Uh, it only took a year or two for the Latin debtors with Mexico at the front to realize that they simply could not manage this debt burden. In 1982, while you and I were at the Treasury, or perhaps by then you had just moved to the Federal Reserve, uh, the Mexican finance minister, Silva Herzog, came to visit Volcker, came to visit Treasury Secretary Reagan, and announced, we can't pay our debts. That was the beginning of a six-year-long period of trying to manage this serious Latin debt crisis, which, if left unmanaged, could have led, as you know very well, to major, major problems for the world economy. Well, that and, and I mean, as you said, I was then at the, at the Federal Reserve uh, with Volcker as chairman. And, and the, the problem was there needed to be a way to kind of stretch out the solution to this problem. And there are three reasons for that. One was the countries themselves, they, if, if, there was no question that the austerity that would be required if they were to repay all of their the, the, this debt when it was due would be unsustainable as a domestic political matter, right? Uh, so the countries needed some more time. The banking system also needed more time because if there had been a default uh, by these countries, we would have had a serious banking crisis in the U.S. and internationally. And the banks needed time to build up reserves and build up capital to be able to take some losses on this cross-border lending. So we needed time for the banking system to become more resilient. The third problem is, um, as you know, that there are political issues. If there's, there's a severe austerity in a country and, and job losses and high unemployment, inevitably it leads to emigration. And with a lot of the, the countries in trouble uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, um, there was a real issue for the United States, both in terms of what might happen to our economy and also politically, if there was a huge uh, shift of migration to try to uh, people cope with their problems. So 
there was a need to come up with a plan to try to, to, to work this out in, in some reasonable period of time, but take some more time. Tell us what happened next. Well, you're right, Nancy. And uh, a, what turned out to be eventually a very successful strategy was developed on the fly. Jacques Delarosier, the brilliant and at that time already experienced managing director of the IMF, working very closely with Paul Volcker at the Fed, Don Regan and others at the Treasury Department, developed a strategy which revolved around the following key elements. First of all, to insist that these borrowing countries will implement serious economic reforms to get their economies back on track, to bring down fiscal deficits, balance of payments deficits, and to contain inflation. At the same time, he approached the banks and said, you're going to have to restructure these loans, and I expect you to put in some new money as well. And the consequence was a series of very intense negotiations involving the multilateral institutions, especially the IMF, but also eventually the World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements, uh, but also uh, the banks. And bank advisory committees were formed. Uh, they ended up sitting across the table from the debtor countries, but with a lot of facilitation and intermediation by the Treasury, the Fed, and in particular the IMF. The IMF really was at the center of developing this strategy. And over a few matter of a few months, it led to an initial agreement with Mexico on restructuring, stretching out its debt, increasing the spreads modestly, the charges on this on these loans, but also increasing some providing some new money. At the same time, Mexico and other subsequent countries, such as Brazil, Argentina, and others, agreed to and implemented some very difficult adjustment programs. That's right. And the, and the reason why the IMF programs were at the core is those programs were based on certain assumptions about what financing would actually be available to the countries in the interim. How do you fill that kind of financing gap, right? Exactly. Just, right, because they're not paying it, repaying it right away. So uh, there were funds provided by World Bank and regional development banks as well as by the, uh, by the creditors in, in terms of what kind of financing packages were needed to keep, to kind of, keep the thing going. Uh, and as you said, it went on and on and on for, for, for quite a long time. And, and um, there came a point, I think, where the question was raised, can we actually solve this problem, right? There was years and Rather years of just push negotiate, right, negotiations and people were getting, getting uh, uh, negotiating weary uh, on, on both sides of the table. So you were at the Treasury then, and there was a, an attempt to try to come up with a solution. Can you talk about that? Certainly, Nancy. There was a lot of fatigue among all the parties. The banks were increasingly reluctant to provide new money. The debtors were increasingly reluctant to implement yet one more phase of reforms. And the economic situation at home in many of these countries was becoming increasingly dire. At the same time, as you mentioned earlier, the banks had been able to strengthen their capital base. So when Nicholas F. Brady arrived at the Treasury Department in August of 1988, toward the end of President Reagan's administration, he began to ask us to take a hard look. And there had already been some discussions about this for the preceding, during the preceding year or two, whether or not we couldn't actually cut the level of the debt mm -hmm. and cast away this heavy cloud, this heavy burden, which lay over the horizon of these countries. So we developed a plan which would enable Mexico, 
and the debtors to, yes, negotiate one more adjustment program, but this time with a different financial package around it, mm-hmm. exchanging Mexican claims for new claims which were structured in such a way that they were securitized, they were tradable in global capital markets, they were backed up and underpinned by treasury bonds, and without taxpayer assistance, which was vital. The result of which was that it created an entirely new dynamic as these programs were implemented. It was not easy to persuade the banks that they should have to write down some of these loans. They were still, most of them, very reluctant. But the secondary markets had given us a way forward here, Nancy, in the late 80s, there was actually the incipient beginning of trading in Latin American debt. And you could go into the markets and buy Mexican debt at 60 cents on the dollar. The result is that the banks could no longer claim. And some of these same banks had trading departments which were engaged in this, right? They could no longer claim that these claims should be based on book value. And the consequence of this, though, was a major change in the whole dynamics and a much more positive turn in events for these countries and actually, eventually, the management of a much lower debt burden, which proved much more sustainable than the previous debt burden had been. But that, I mean, there's always good news and bad news, right? So the good news is these instruments became more tradable. Uh, Second, there, there became many more financial institutions and, and investors who could who can buy who could buy exposure uh, and, and buy these securities. So they were held by pension funds and mutual funds and insurance companies as well as banks. So you got a much broader range of investors. So that's sort of the good news. But the bad news is when you get into trouble, it might be harder to deal with that. So tell us about the next set of challenges that were well, out there you, you, in, you're the, right in on the 90s and, and 2000s. You're right on both fronts. I mean, Secretary Brady had provided some essential and necessary leadership in 1989 and 1990 to launch the Brady Plan. But this had brought in a whole new world of investors, hedge funds, private wealth, uh, other day traders and, and others who were no longer interested in holding on to claims against these countries over the long term, but they were buying highly liquid tradable instruments. This new world uh, changed the dynamics of the relationship between the borrowers and the lenders. For four or five years, it all worked quite well. But then again, with Mexico at the front of the list, in 1994, uh, they had allowed their exchange rate, which was fixed to the dollar at the time, to become overvalued. Uh, administration was coming to an end, and new elections were coming in, and the outgoing administration really wanted to hang on to the exchange rate. The result, however, was that when President Cedillo was inaugurated in late 1994, mm-hmm. he found tremendous pressure on the exchange rate. In the last months of the previous administration, they had started issuing short-term Mexican Treasury bills, which were denominated in Mexican currency, but guaranteed in dollars. And this was the, the, the straw that broke the Not, not the way to finance yourself with an overvalued exchange rate. Not at all. <laughs> You're going to have a run. Not at all. <laughs> and that's what happened, Nancy. Uh, he tried to move the currency a modest amount, made it devaluation of sub-15%, it did not hold, and then the dam broke. Mm-hmm. Uh, inflation accelerated through the roof as the currency depreciated rapidly, and investors started to run away. Mm-hmm. And they had instruments that they could run away. And so 
consequence was really that in early 1995, Mexico again faced a serious problem of the need to find some way to stabilize this Tesla Bono market because they were running out of reserves. Mm -hmm. So, um, so then uh, we have a, uh, an issue about how you deal with it. And I guess with that one, the U.S. Treasury was very concerned um, that if Mexico defaulted on, on their securities, uh, that that could cause a major financial shock to the system. Because at least in the modern era, there had never been a default on government bonds. There had been defaults on loans we were aware of. Uh, and, and a century before, Argentina defaulted on their sovereign bonds. But there was a sense that this others. that this was right that this was going to be that this was going to be a big shock, and so what the Treasury did was organize fifty billion dollars of financing for Mexico without there being any debt restructuring required, and there was a fair amount of pushback from other countries, you know, just saying this, you know, should we be bailing out the private sector, uh, and the sense was, you know, in we kind of don't have a choice if we don't want the whole system to be one big contagious mess. Uh, and I think you probably feel like I do. I've never met a secretary of the treasury that wants a global meltdown of financial markets on his watch, on his watch or, sure. or her watch. So, um, but then the, the, the problem was going forward, I think there was not a desire to let that happen again. That They did want to try to find a way if countries needed to, uh, enter into an economic program and do adjustment that there was some contribution being made by investors uh, who, who maybe didn't make entirely intelligent decisions either, right? So then what happened, uh, given the range of, of investment investor types uh, that were in the market? Well, the as, as with all of these sovereign debt cases, there are always concerns about so-called moral hazard and bailing out the creditors, but the Treasury showed courage and they mobilized a major support package that included some U.S. government funding, along with IMF and I believe a small amount of World Bank funding. But alongside this came a new Mexican finance minister, highly experienced, Gideon Ortiz, and a very strong new adjustment program. Mm -hmm. And within a matter of months, Nancy, it had rebuilt confidence in Mexico in global capital markets. And by the fall of 1995, I still remember being so pleasantly shocked when I had a call from Ortiz one day, it's, we have oversold our new bond issue. <laughs> this was less than a year after the crisis That's had erupted. Amazing. So Treasury strategy, worked. despite the criticism, worked very well. And it, it unfortunately, though, did lead to some serious problems for Mexican banks and for the Mexican economy. But it showed us that we were facing new challenges in managing sovereign debt as we entered not only a new decade, but a new millennium. Yeah. So what, what was done with, with, with subsequent crises with Asia in the 1990s um, and uh, Russia and others? So what was done when a country would get into trouble? What was the role of the IMF? And then what was done to try to get this vast array of investors to agree to rescheduling? Well, you know, the IMF continued throughout all this period, despite changes in global financing global capital markets to play a pivotal role in designing adjustment programs. And if you look at the cases of 
Indonesia, Korea, Thailand in the late 90s, Russia in the late 90s, you find that in each and every case, there was an IMF-supported economic adjustment and reform program. But in addition to that, the creditors and the IMF and others decided, look, we need to make the process of restructurings, which will still need to take place from time to time, a bit more manageable. And so they changed the documentation and the structure of these loan instruments somewhat, Nancy, so that it didn't take unanimity to reach agreement on a restructuring. These so-called collective action clauses enabled creditors to decide with something like two-thirds, three-quarters of a majority that we will have a restructuring of the debt. And it took some of the leverage away from hedge funds and other potential holdouts so that the system could continue to function. Right. Right. I mean, what, what seemed to me with, with uh, collective action clauses is that, um, you know, the goal of a sovereign, sovereign debt resolution is to get the debtor country in an economic position where it, it's, it, it can meet its financing needs uh, on a sustainable basis going forward. It is going to continue to need market, market access. Uh, for, for the long-term growth. And, and, and at their core, uh, markets function because they're based on enforceable contracts. And without them, we're not going to have markets. So the goal, it seemed to me, of the collective action clauses was to get creditors, when they're entering into financings, whether it's through bonds or otherwise, to sort of plan ahead on what might, be, what might happen if, if everybody's assumptions are not right and there needs to be a rescheduling, and decide, you know, how they're going to go about doing that. And so what the collective action clauses did was say, in that event, you know, not every uh, investor is going to have an equal voice at the table. We're going to have to be bound by some high majority vote uh, on what the terms of the rescheduling. You're right. It, and, and those changes actually have evolved. They've become much more efficient. Uh, efforts were made over the years to create much more comprehensive you might say top-down approaches to sovereign debt restructuring, such as those proposed by the IMF. But frankly, the world of sovereign debt will always be a unique arena where Chapter 11 is unlikely to ever exist, certainly right. in our lifetimes and That's probably right. for, for decades. Uh, at the Institute of International Finance, which I led, we developed some core principles, voluntary negotiations, transparency, good faith, and these principles have proved useful over the years, but the fact of the matter is, is that it takes a willingness of both the creditor and the debtor, a framework that is transparent and negotiated solutions to these problems, which cannot be forced unilaterally on either the debtor or the creditor. Now let's try, we don't have a lot of time left, but let's try to deal with one more major crisis of a sovereign debt rescheduling. And this was um, after the 2008 failure of Lehman Brothers in the U.S. and the contagion from the U.S. subprime crisis. There was a new uh, but related crisis occurring in Europe in about 2010 and the years that followed. And the financial distress of at least one member of the European Union risked the viability of the euro in the euro area, and that was Greece. And uh, this was a problem that was a real cliffhanger. Um, no one could conceive at that point of a euro area country not being able to meet its debts, in large part because the, the European Central Bank set its monetary policy and essentially its exchange rate. 
and there were European Euro area rules on what size your your uh, deficit could be, and there were fiscal rules. And uh, the problem was that Greece had been dishonest for years about the size of its deficit and the, and the level of its debt. And once those facts became known, uh, there was a huge shock uh, uh, to the system and a potential contagion effect. Um, so can you tell us kind of simply how this crisis got managed and um, what role the IMF played in that? Sure, Nancy. As you know, uh, I was asked actually to lead the negotiation on the part of the creditors along with my colleague from BNP Paribas, Jean Lanier. And this crisis took on entirely new dimensions, as you suggest, for a number of reasons. First of all, um, the ECB, the leadership of the ECB, and many others in the system, refused to contemplate the idea of a debt restructuring and a debt reduction because they believed that membership in the Eurozone was sacrosanct and protected any country from that. But the reality is that Greece had massive unmanageable obligations, roughly $300 billion. The IMF at first was not welcome because Europe said, thank you, Mr. IMF, we can solve this on our own. But within months, it became clear that they had neither the institutions nor the, the arrangements nor the funding to do that. And so the IMF was invited in in the spring of 2010, a program was established, again, around sound programmatic goals, but without any debt restructuring. It proved unworkable. And eventually, in 2011, the decision was made. And ironically, debt negotiations, for the first time in my experience, were actually initiated by the creditors. We took the first step to get people around the table. The IMF, though, was dealing with a situation where it didn't really have the funding that it needed because it turned out that what was centered around Greece was actually a Euro-wide crisis, right. as you will recall. Yeah, Spain, Portugal. Time, Spain, Portugal, yeah. Italy, and Ireland were right. also under tremendous stress. The IMF also did not have pure unilateral leadership in terms of negotiating a program. They formed what was called the Troika, which was consist of the IMF, European Commission and the ECB. Yeah, because the Europeans were putting in money in parallel with the IMF. They program. were, and increasing amounts, right. actually. And then you had this very odd situation, again, a first for me, where the debtor sitting there, Greece, had virtually no authority to speak on its own behalf because it was surrounded by other forces which were much more stronger than it was. Uh, somehow, though, we managed to get through this, and after a year of intense negotiations, the largest debt restructuring in history was agreed. Uh, and Greece actually eventually turned the corner as a result of this. We wiped out in one day $107 billion worth of debt that wow. Greece held in the private sector. It was not easy to corral these private creditors because, again, as we know, it was a very atomistic, diverse world of creditors that had emerged during the Well, 1990s. and a lot of it, I mean, part of the complication, too, was a lot of the debt was held by European banks, and the Europeans did not have very good ways of dealing with risk in their own banking system. Well, uh, and so that further complicated what was doable, because, you know, any write-down by a bank, if it didn't have enough capital, then meant government support for the bank. So, well, that's right. And, uh, and as you know, you had this situation where, uh, because Greece was a member of the Eurozone, 
the banks actually dropped their guard almost completely in terms of managing risk against Greece because they saw higher returns. They saw an umbrella that supposedly would be provided by Germany. Of course, it was not. Uh, and the result was that huge amounts of lending took place in the first decade of the 2000s. And as you pointed out, Greece was at times fudging the numbers, not providing accurate data. So when Greece revealed the size of its fiscal deficit, which was pushing close to 15% Gosh. in 2009 and 10, the markets just completely shut them down. Yeah. It was not quite like anything we had seen. It was like a, almost like a Tesla Bono crisis. Yeah. But I mean, the, the, the amazing thing today, I read in the newspapers, how Greece is basically doing better than just about any other European country in terms of their economic performance and their inflation. But you know, um, and and uh, you know, I think it looks like they they learned some lessons. Well, they have, Nancy. Some yeah. of the reforms put into place in that era, particularly under Lucas Papademos, the prime minister for seven months, have finally taken hold, improved the flexibility of the labor markets, and some of the debt reduction has left Greece facing a long period of holding reduced claims at concessional rates. So their debt is not market-based now for another 20 or so years. And Greece has a strong reform-oriented government. So we've come through this, but it's very important that the IMF and the Eurozone sit together because crisis can always happen, you yeah. see, and they need to sit together and decide, okay, if we're faced with another one of these. Yeah, how do we do it? How do how we do manage we do it? it? Right. You know, what is the basis for yeah. lending? And, and uh, yeah. who's going to provide the funding? Who will lead the negotiations over the reform right. program? What is the role of the debtor? Yeah. These are all issues that really need to be discussed, as we know, while there is a fair amount of calm and not That's in the midst right, of a right, crisis. right, when, when before the storm hits. Well, I want to thank you, Charles, for what's been really a wonderful insider's look at the IMF's critical role in, in resolving sovereign debt crises and how all the players interrelate. Um, I should mention that to our audience that what we heard today about the Greek restructuring was just kind of a teaser for your book that's coming out in the oh. fall. And I look forward to right that. I may, I may give it to myself and others as a Christmas gift. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and then in our next three podcasts, we're going to be looking at ways in which the framework for international cooperation in monetary and financial affairs uh, was modified to deal with the financial crises of the 1990s and 2000s. And we're going to discuss the crises from a somewhat different perspective looking at how the market developments basically required uh, some new policy perspectives and some new pieces to the institutional framework. So please join us as the story continues. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Nancy. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Charles.